Hello, and welcome to another episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration. From the Migration Policy Institute, this is the podcast all about how different aspects of climate change are influencing migration. I'm your host, Julian Haddam, and I'm also the editor of MPI's in-house magazine, The Migration Information Source. We're producing this podcast in tandem with a series of articles on climate change and migration. Those are online at migrationpolicy.org slash climate. Often when we talk about migration in the midst of climate change, we talk about this migration as a negative thing. Typically, it's framed as an unfortunate consequence of climate change, or in some cases, as the last resort for communities that have exhausted all other methods of adapting in place. But that can be a bit short-sighted of a perspective. Just like other types of movements, this phenomenon that we have been calling climate migration is neither inherently bad nor good. Instead, it can be better to think of it as a strategy that people might take in response to various pressures, which can lead to a wide array of outcomes. And today I want to talk about some of the ways that migration can be beneficial for individuals and communities threatened by the impacts of climate change. And I am very glad to be able to do so with Harold Sterley. Harold is a human geographer at the University of Vienna in Austria, and he co-wrote an article for the Migration Information Source looking at how people in Northeast Thailand have used migration as a tactic to be more resilient to environmental changes. Harold, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Julian. I'm very happy to be here with you. So, as I mentioned, there is a common narrative that people who are prompted to migrate because of climate or environmental circumstances are always tragic victims of devastating events beyond their control. And while we certainly don't want to discount the very real and difficult challenges that many people face, what's missing in that narrative? Why is migration in the face of climate change not always a bad thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one one key thing that you already um, mentioned is the the um, the way how migration in the face of climate change or with nexus or with linkages to climate change is depicted, and very often this is framed in terms of uh, displacement and involuntary um, migration of whole communities and dislocation of families and households. Um, which is happening, and it's tragic, of course, and we, we have these cases for sure. Um, but there's many other ways we see human mobility linked in one way or the other to climate change or to environmental change and environmental factors. Um, and in many, many cases, uh, these linkages are indirect. Um, and in many of those cases, as we have seen in, in Northern Thailand and Northern Eastern Thailand, or Northeastern Thailand, as, uh, as you mentioned, um, what we could see is that um, migration, with all its linkages and the things that come after people go, right? They stay usually connected to their places of origin. They send uh, money. They send ideas. Um, all this leads to um, people increasing their capacity to deal with any kind of risks. Um, but one thing, one key reason why people migrate is to deal with difficulties and, and problematic situations, right? Need more income, need better life chances and so on. And one type of these risks are, uh, could be and are in increasing number of cases, climate risks. So what can happen or what we can observe is that um, migration unlocks resources for people to deal with adverse effects of climate change. You say unlocks resources. What do you mean by that? What kind of resources can migration unlock? Well, one one very 
prominent example is, is always financial remittances. Um, we might have it, we might have in mind this this uh, ratio of uh, four to four to to one between uh, international remittances and the the international development uh, aid flowing. So it's a huge amount of, of capital that is transferred by migrants to their you mean places by that, of origin. Four times as much money goes back to origin countries in terms of remittances compared to like international aid. Yes, exactly. So it's a, it's a huge figure, and in the past years, this has been even the ratio has been increasing slightly. So it's quite a it's quite a significant amount of resources, and we have an unknown uh, amount of of uh, resource, finances even transferred in within countries. Um, so what happens on the international scale also happens at the the uh, domestic scale. Money transferred from the capital city of Bangkok, for example, or the people working in factories, um, to the northeast where where their families and the household members live. Um, so this financial remittances that's a, and that's that's already something, right? So if your harvest fails in in the rural areas, um, but you still can rely on regular or even not only regular, but also the, the in case of emergency remittances and money sent by your relatives, um, that helps you get by. That helps you cope with with the adverse impacts of disasters. Um, but then there's also um, ideas, worldviews, um, all kinds of of uh, we could say social remittances uh, coming with these um, these migratory movements that are established through people going to another place. And we have multiple examples also from from Thailand where especially ideas and, and knowledge, but also aspirations and, um, let's say, entrepreneurial spirit, to put it in that, in, in that way, um, comes with, mig- with return migrants, of course, people coming back after some years of work, bringing skills with them, but also directly through linkages that people have to other places. So there's all sorts of, of things coming and going, not only money, but there's also goods, there's clothing, there's tools, um, there's the, mo- the mobile phone, the mobile phone coming with people um, from the cities to the rural areas and so on. So there's lots of, of exchange relations what we have here. Talk to me about some of those examples, either from Thailand or others that you've seen in your work. Um, I mean, what kinds of, you talk about entrepreneurial ideas or skills and um, things of that nature. I guess, what are we referring to? Let's talk maybe if there are farmers, do, are they just learning different types of irrigation or what kinds of things do people learn or kind of my, how are their mindsets changed in ways by migration from that you've seen from your research? Mm. Well, that depends, of course, very much on, on, on the context. Um, uh, from our research in Thailand, we have a, a broad range of examples what what um, what people bring back or send back um, that transforms the way things are done. Uh, just to give an example, uh, we had one one return migrant from the poor northeast of, of Thailand um, who worked as a journalist in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Um, and through her networks and her topics on, uh, I think, agroecological change and organic farming, she had ideas of doing something on with organic farming when returning to the village. And when she had returned to the village, um, she started doing organic rice business and soon found out that there was a lack of producers because to cater for, for local markets, it was too difficult for her um, to negotiate prices and to make convincing offers to, for example, hospitals who needed a reliable pesticide-free source of, uh, source of food. So she 
um, initiated other people to turn to organic farming as well. So there's this one person who transformed, who really transformed half a village to organic farming. And they are now um, catering um, all this, the, the, the hospitals and some of the schools in the sub-district with uh, organic rice. Then there are very small examples where people see other agricultural practices. For example, um, not transplanting the rice, which is, uh, gives you a higher yield, but it's very time-consuming. And once you have higher climate variability and the rain comes, you start transplanting your rice and then the rain goes away again for two weeks. Your rice is dead. You have to do the whole thing again. That's that's not affordable for farmers. So people start uh, directly sowing the rice, like we would sow uh, in, in um, our, our, our grains, like putting the grains on the fields, which has a lower yield, but it's much less work. And it's an adaptation to changing uh, climate regimes or rainfall regimes. And this, uh, we, tr we could trace this back to, to migrants, um, domestic migrants staying at somewhere saying, I observed that happening. I was wondering and I told my people at home and now they do that. Well, they save lots of money because they don't need to pay day laborers to do the rice transplanting. Right? That's, that's an example. Another example, migrants going to Israel, working in, uh, in highly technologized agriculture, coming back and starting um, drip irrigation on, on fields in Thailand. So there's all these kinds of examples. One problem is if people work in, we have these examples in, in industrial um, or in, in uh, construction activities, for example, in Singapore or Bangkok, the more complex tasks are broken down to single things. Like if you are only doing concrete slabs for elevators, that's a thing you can't do concrete work in, in your village. But the most specialized things that you really learn that you've got well paid in, in your uh, destination in Taiwan or Singapore, you cannot transform this easy to a village or tra translate this into something that, that pays off in the village. So there's hindrances to getting everything from, from one place to the other in terms of knowledge and skills. But we have a large variety of knowledge, skills, uh, and also aspirations, how people come back and have learned, I can do it in this, in this other country, so I can go do business here. I can push against, um, um, against my family who says, like, what? You wanted different types of farming? No, son. Everybody did rice farming here in this and this way. I said, yeah, but I can't do it because I, I did it two year, uh, 20 years in, in Singapore. Now I can't do against my father's advice, yeah. right? And, and do organic farming in this village. So large difference in things. That's great. I, I love those examples. Those are great. Uh, I'm curious, though, you mentioned these hindrances um, that you learn you know, one step of a 50-step process, let's say, uh, which may or may not translate back to your place of origin. Um, and I'm sure that is one of the ways that can offset some of this, uh, some of the benefits of migration. I guess what other other challengers, or I guess what are the conditions that determine whether an individual's migration um, can result in these kinds of positive growth transformational effects versus maybe not? What if there is one or two things? What determines what path mm. that migration takes? That outcome. Oh, that's again, quite, it's a good question. I would say also here it depends very much on the on the context and mm -hmm. on on the different on the ways how things and, and factors on different levels uh, interact here. So you have the uh, like a higher level things, uh, let's say uh, national level policies, right? How migration, whether they are, for example, migrant. Um, 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 migration agreements, bilateral agreements uh, that ease 
labor flow um, or whether migrants get training or other support that reduces costs and investment in migration. Mm -hmm. um, then you have obviously factors like if there's a very high risk of, of uh, uh, high risk level, let's say uh, if you're living in a coastal area, sea level rise is a constant and, and large threat. There's certain things you can't do. You, you can't undo with migration and remittances. So there's these higher level uh, structural factors. Um, then there's, of course, situational factors, like whether you migrate in terms of need and you, you have to take any job that you can get anywhere that reduces your ability to, to make a good income, to have a good and safe and uh, ha hazard-free or uh, a job with little hazards uh, um, that enables you to work for a longer time, to get promoted and so on, to regularly remit uh, to your home area, for example. So the situational aspect, can you plan, can you choose, or do you have to, to leave now, now? Situational things uh, could be a factor. Then, of course, household and individual factors. This might be one of the strongest things that we found. Um, this is not an automatism. It's not a determinant thing, but mm -hmm. we could observe that very often uh, very poor and resource-depraved um, and, and pre precarious household in the rural areas tend to produce precarious migrants, mm -hmm. right? With little education, with little choice of, of job, what job to take, um, with Sometimes the situational thing, little choice when to migrate because there's little resources to buffer things. So once certain things happen, health costs arise or whatever, somebody needs to go to the city to get funds, uh, take any job that he or she can get and, and remit money. And the poorer the household, the more dependent they are on their rents. And this puts pressure on the migrants. So the migrants uh, will the likelihood that the migrants have difficulties to move up in the in something like a labor or migrant biography, getting more successful jobs, applying for a better job, making some savings, uh, um, enlarging their household, marrying in the city. All these things are much more difficult if you have to send every penny to your household in the place of origin. So the, the socioeconomic conditions of, of households play a, a certain role here, um, but also the other levels. So you could say that in the end, the social ecological systems, power structures and, uh, and inequalities in rural areas and on national level, they tend to reproduce poverty and precarity um, in rural areas, also in, in urban areas. That's really interesting. Um, so th then this is a process that, um, when successful, is sometimes referred to as migration as adaptation, right? Is that the fair way to characterize this? Because zooming out a little bit more to how we talk about migration in the midst of climate change more broadly, I want to turn to this concept and this notion of translocal resilience, which is something you've written about uh, and which needs a little bit of unpacking because it kind of goes over my head. Um, so you've used this phrase, if I'm correct, to talk about the broader context of migration and conceiving of international movement as more than just person A moving from place X to point Y, but uh, person A within a broader context and network of uh, people and individuals and policies and conditions, as you kind of talked about right there. Um, right, I guess, can you explain this concept of translocal resilience a bit and why and how it pertains to the discussion of migrating amid uh, climate impacts and climate variability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, that's a good, that's a good one. I try to be brief and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, clear here. Um, it's not magical mystery work, but it's quite, uh, it, it's a, uh, it, 
a complex that oh, it's a it's a concept that tries to embrace the the complexity of processes and structures that we find here, right? Because what we all often find is, well, in one place, migration produces positive outcomes and in another place, negative. How can this be? All conditions seem to be similar. But what we first first have to tie in, 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 keep in mind is we are talking about translocal entities, systems, things. Um, one of our key focus areas is the household, or let's say livelihoods. And while our key tenet is that migration is just the starting point because of two things. First, migration is not only happening out of climate change, but it's happening anyway with or without climate change. There is and there will be migration. The second thing that's even more important, uh, migration is not when a person goes to one place to the other, uh, from one place to the other. It's This is the starting point uh, for this that we, we take into account here. It's the connections that arise out of this. So a person comes from the village to the city or goes from the village to the city and stays connected, um, establishes a household, works there um, either regularly or irregularly, sends uh, remittances, ideas, whatever, connects with his home place um, on different levels. Individuals, a son might send money especially to her, to, to this, his sister for uh, education, but also to the whole household to buy more land or um, to support the parents in old age and so on. If there's an accident in the city, the household supports the migrant in times of need. So we think that it's necessary to conceive this as one system. So it's a system consisting of people in destination areas, the migrant and relatives and household members in the destination area, often it's not the migrant alone, and people at the origin areas, household members uh, at the origin area, and all the connections in between. And then a second important thing in translocal social resilience thinking is scale, because uh, once we understand that we have to take both sides into account, it's necessary to also to think in terms of individual and household and community level effects and, and factors here. So you could have one migrant being uh, in, in, um, in precarious situations under, under hazardous working conditions, in prostitution or whatsoever, and the household gets by through the remittances sent by the migrant, right? Uh, but the overall system is in, in total imbalance. And we have as a key definition for us, transport resilience is the ability of these translocal systems, like individuals, households, communities, to deal with risks and to um, increase or maintain well-being um, without um, compromising individuals or lower-level um, um, members' uh, well-being, um, and this is an important part. This this often falls out of the of the of the calculation or the perspective. Well, and then the thing is, um, these these scales matter the more because we need to see and consider these systems embedded in other levels. So if I say household is the most important level of our consideration here, the livelihoods on a household level, of course, these households are embedded in social structures in, in, in village level and in social structures in the destination. I also say village, it could also a small town as the origin, right? But um, they are embedded in different social structures with power imbalances, with uh, inequalities um, and uh, and domination structures and so on. So um, gender intersectionality and so on matter between the individual and the household, but also in the, in the, in the higher social levels. 
And then, of course, you have the embedding in economic structures, like in, in uh, places of destination, in factory works and so on, but also in the rural places in the um, most cases would be agriculture or related activities with all the ecological risks and the social ecologic couplings that are in there. Um, so it's multi-place, multi-time and multi-dimensional um, things that needs to be taken into account for this translocal social resilience. Uh, but this helps us a lot understanding the rationalities, why people do something, why they migrate and why they decide in certain to, to act in certain ways. Once you only have the migrant's perspective, you won't understand things, why somebody stays in a, in a hazardous or a really precarious situation. Once you understand that this is because he or she supports uh, the daughter in the village uh, to finish the school, it makes clear and you understand, okay, now you have to understand the whole system. That's great. And that's a really good explanation. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're right that it, it helps account for why people do things that on their face might not make sense. But I can also imagine if you are a, uh, a government or a major international or local organization or an aid group or whatever, that also makes your job a lot more complicated, right? Because if there's a migrant who's uh, in sex work or is doing a very difficult job, it's not just that one thing you have to quote unquote fix, but it's this broader network and system that has to be addressed, right? How does that, I guess, how does this thinking problematize or affect um, broader actors who work with migrants and developmental issues? Yeah, interesting. Because then the, I guess one thing that, that uh, we found, um, I wouldn't say missing, but very far, uh, I would say underdeveloped, let's put it like that, mm -hmm. um, is the the consideration of migration in many sectoral policies. Um, when we are talking about the silos of sector sectoral policies, I would say most in most countries, in most contexts, uh, policies or ministries or sectoral uh, um, thinkers are trying to build bridges between those silos. But migration is always far away from these, mm -hmm. um, from rural or agricultural development, from taxation, from infrastructure, from local, regional, national um, um, development uh, policies and also practices if you talk to practitioners. Um, so that was one of our key findings that, oh, it's interesting. Migration can be uh, or should be taken into account, not everywhere. It's, of course, that you could say this is our our desk perspective. We have migration lenses on. So, of course, we say migration is important. Um, but in many ways, it doesn't take lots of additional resources to consider migration actively as one factor. Uh, in any kind of, of political or policy works or um, planning activities, um, community activities, and so on, um, other than saying like, "Oh, interesting," we had these these discussions and these these discourses with uh, with our partners, like, "Well, migration, yeah." Uh, one day you go to a village, make a community meeting, and uh, two months later you come for the next meeting, and they're different people. It's like this migration is a nuisance. So what do you do about that? Like I just don't know. It's just it's just annoying. It's okay, but uh, you can turn turning mud to gold. Maybe not that, but you can at least take into account. It's like okay. So but then did you ever try to get these migrants connected? People staying in in Singapore with a mobile phone, you can easily connect them on on WhatsApp line or whatever social media. And it's like okay, there's a community meeting. Do you want to participate? Put the phone here and just listen. Or ask people in the meeting in the community, like, okay, ask your migrant relatives, and uh, next week we meet again, and you get their response in here. So there are 
numerous ways of, of uh, actively taking that into account. And the second thing is, and this is one of our other key, key ideas, uh, things that it's not magical mystery work, it's pretty evident. Once you improve the situation of migrants, uh, it's very likely that this translates also improvement of situation of the people and people in places of origin. So once you increase minimum wages, once you provide people with real contracts, social insurance, and so on and so forth, uh, we're talking now in, in, in terms of uh, developing countries, but not only. We have many, many countries where migrant workers, and we see this in COVID times, are among the most disadvantaged uh, groups uh, that we can observe in terms of job security, exposure to, to risk and hazards, and so on. So once we improve the situation of migrants through... Um, less dependency on on, on, uh, on rural places or on places of origin in emergencies like COVID now, or um, to the ability to, to have a more stable income and maybe better contribute to household, uh, translocal household situations and livelihoods, you automatically improve the situation of people in other places. So I think that's a, that's a thing to consider in, in the development world as well. I want to uh, close out by turning to this issue of COVID, which you just brought up. Uh, obviously, the pandemic has really dramatically slowed, if not entirely halted, a lot of global movement. Um, I know there's been reporting on how that's affected financial remittances, in which a lot of places, not every place, but a lot of places, they've really, really uh, scaled back. Um, it's, what have you seen and what can you say about how the pandemic this last year or so has affected these financial, social networks and systems that... Uh, seem to be, if not the lifeblood, very important for a lot of individuals and communities. Because what's happened over the last year because of the pandemic? And how many of these impacts are going to be not just one-year pandemic but and go back to normal, quote-unquote, but are going to be felt over the longer term? Wow, yeah, that's a good question. Well, we have, what we have up to now is pretty... well, scattered anecdotal evidence of, of what is happening um, there has been little, uh, um, I don't know, there might be attempts, but up to now there has been little well research published that takes time normally, a long time, but also from our networks, what people do. Um, we know that some people are working on that, but it's not really a, a broader knowledge base that is already there. What we do know is that um, migration has been... Um, not coming to standstill, but there has been there have been considerable um, barriers to movement. Um, people had been forced to return to their home countries due to various reasons, um, passport issues, and people got expelled. Um, but in many cases, people just lost their jobs because uh, companies had to close down, public services had to be had had, had reduced their their activities. Um, in, in the informal sector had big problems because once there's a lockdown, nobody goes to the street. You don't need public transportation. You don't need street food vendors and so on. So there's all these kind of things that meant migrants had lost income. Many of them had to return. Exact numbers, nobody knows. Alone in India, there's estimates between 10 and 20 million domestic migrants returned to their home places, home villages with all the adverse consequences. Many dozens or hundreds are don't know the exact figures um, on people died on the road because they were stuck in in, 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 um, in limbo between while, while trying to on foot cross uh, um, internal uh, borders and to, to reach their, their home places and so on. So there's all these kind of stories. Um, 
so the, the, the stopping of migration routes and the blocking of migration was one issue. The blocking of uh, translocal connectivity was another one. Uh, partly people couldn't uh, remit money because they couldn't leave their houses. They couldn't go to the, to the um, international banking point sending money. Um, same same thing in villages where where lockdowns were not infer, in, imposed that strictly, but um, so the, the translocal linkages were blocked. People couldn't visit; they couldn't move. Um, so that's that was serious consequences in places. And we have anecdotal evidence where this hit really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but still, we don't have much much uh, much good knowledge on that. Um, we are currently conducting research on that in, uh, in a number of countries. And, I think there will be some results in the next coming months. How this will be translating into future things, I don't know. Um, what we can see, things are slowly, slowly getting up to normal in some places again. Mm-hmm. At least what concerning domestic uh, um, mobility, international mobility in many places, it's still uh, again in the second second lockdown and second or maybe third wave uh, being blocked again. I don't know. That's that's pretty unclear. Um, there is as or there, there are predictions that migrant migration or migrants might be more under scrutiny um, as one of the things that uh, turned out that migrants have been portrayed by media by right wing or well, let's say right wing groups as uh, um, as um, vectors of disease. Um, so. There might be more hostility towards migrants. Uh, migrants will, might save more problems in crossing borders. And I guess these are things that should be also addressed on an uh, international level to, to think about this when we're talking about the uh, International Compact for Safe and Orderly Migration. Now this gets even more important, um, safe, especially safe, safe migration. We should probably wrap up the conversation there. But this has been super interesting, and I've learned a lot. Harold, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been fun. Harold Sterling is a senior scientist in the University of Vienna's Department of Geography. His article for the Migration Information Source is called Building Climate Resilience Through Migration in Thailand. Thank you for listening to this episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration. Please subscribe through your podcast service of choice. And if you enjoyed this talk, I'd also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast from my MPI colleague, Megan Benton, which explores what the world will look like after COVID-19. That's called Moving Beyond Pandemic. You can also find every episode of both of our podcasts online in our archives at migrationpolicy.org slash podcasts. Our full collection of analysis on how climate change affects migration is online at migrationpolicy.org slash climate. If you want to get in touch, you can send me an email at source at migrationpolicy.org and follow MPI on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Yusuf Hamid and Kenya Guerrero and made possible by Julia Yanoff and Lisa Dixon with oversight from Michelle Middlestadt. The music you're listening to is called Touch by Patrick Patrickios. My name is Julian Haddam. Thank you for tuning in.